Episode 83 of The Passive Hang. Welcome back guys, it's Fayon here. Today we are joined with Benjamin Byfield, a dear friend of mine. You guys might notice uh, or might recognize him from a previous podcast episode in episode 48, uh, where Ben and I with another friend Bilal went to the Gains in the Ghetto workshop and we debriefed from that experience. If you haven't checked that one out before, please do. Uh, ben is... Uh, one of my brothers in arms in this practice, we always spend a lot of days and nights catching up, talking about all sorts of concepts, you know, really nerd out about the movement practice. So I was very excited to get Ben on. Ben is the founder of The Meditative Monkey, which is a movement studio based in the Central Coast, New South Wales in Australia. Ben always asks very provocative questions, uh, which get me to, better understand my own biases and narratives that I'm telling myself, often rewriting them with more positive ones. And Ben has a very big focus on real self-transformation, I would say. He studies deeply the work of Gurdjieff, and together with the movement practice, he really tries to fuse both uh, Gurdjieff's work from the fourth way into the movement practice and what he shares with others. And in this conversation, he also shares some practical uh, ways on how he does that. So I think it's a very useful and valuable insight on how he does that. And we also get to discuss as well how he's cultivated his community there and also what he thinks about when he's thinking about sharing and introducing movement practice to beginners. So I know there's a lot in this one for you guys. I hope you guys enjoy. Without any further ado, we are going to get started. I'll see you in the episode. It's a wonderful day because I have Benjamin Byfield on the Passive Hang. Welcome, Ben. Wow. Thank you. Great to be here. Great to talk to you. Benjamin Byfield, who is a very um, regular cameo on a lot of some of the Passive Hang videos and vlogs. He is my accompanying friend, bandit, to go to all these movement workshops that we have been so lucky to have been uh, had the opportunity to go to. And so, yeah, Ben is sort of like a brother in arms in this whole journey through movement that I've been able to experience. Uh, we both um, train under the Praxis Practitioner Program with Thomas Emerson, and then we've been to a number of workshops all over Australia as well. And so we have spent many, many a day and night debriefing after all these workshops, talking about workshop material, but also talking about complete nonsense, which I always very, very much enjoy. So everybody, let's welcome Ben. And we're going to get straight stuck in because I want to just talk to Ben about how his training is going at the moment. And uh, yeah, what are you working on? Right. Well, thank you once again. And it's really you know we, we talk regularly but this is your like you know your your special project and and it's such a wonderful thing to observe and it's how i learned about you to to begin with um or you know simultaneously with um with, with you know meeting you online and 
it's uh, I think it's a great service. So it's a great honor to be invited to to chat with you. So I really appreciate it, man. Um, to answer your question, how's training? Training's great, as you mentioned, doing the practitioner program, the the remote coaching program uh, under Tom Emerson at Praxis in Canberra, and it's going well. I've uh, I'm on my fifteenth fifteenth block of work with Tom. Nice, and it's it's just part of my life. Like it's it's a funny question to answer because it's framed as if it's this you know how's how's training going as if training is this separate component from life but mm. it's so deeply interwoven into into my life so it's almost like a question of how's life and it's great um you know it, it's always challenging and uh inspiring and and always offers great material to observe observe myself and to to learn about myself and to discover um discover new things about myself and discover new possibilities um talking specifics uh, there's a lot of still a lot of strength work so i've been recently been able to perform full range of motion handstand push-ups which was you know, a long long-term project nice um, so now just building volume with those and quality um and working towards one arm chin-ups like so close but so far as, as we often discuss um working on uh yeah, lower body strength and a lot of jumping at the moment, a lot of um, balancing work as well, like rail balancing, which I really enjoy. I, 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 maybe it's something we can discuss, but I can't quite put my finger on why. But I just really love that material, the, the, the lower body balancing material. So that's really cool, um, and and that's a great one to get 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 us or to get me and you know to get people outside of the gym too. Um, I liken it to you know. Um, when you first learn to drive, suddenly you start to notice that all these street signs exist that you never realized were there before. And they've always been there, but now I'm, you're seeing them. And mm-hmm. with the rail balancing material, now I'm, you know, like a hawk looking out for rails and seeing, seeing rails whenever I'm out and <laughs> driving. And so that's, that's a cool, uh, that, that's a cool additional project um, or, or um, benefit of, of that work. Get me outside and get me noticing new things and working on acrobatics a um, little bit of handstands as well. I've recently, recently regained the itch to develop um, one on handstand and, and work towards that. So that's been slowly reintegrated into my programs, and working on um, acrobatic elements like macacao and estabrado, which are my biggest struggles um, for my, my, I think my my body type and my preferences and you know my my training history. It's the the kind of work that I find the most difficult. So that's very very frustrating um but again really good material to observe yourself observe observe certain habits not just physical habits but emotional habits mm-hmm. you know the, the frustrations and the, the the tensions and the um and the internal self-talk you know the 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 um you know, the questioning and the doubting and but also the you know finding that finding that part that's wants to just keep going and like despite all that like you know that that part that just wants to keep keep persisting and, and is okay with that and find finding that and um being being okay with it. So oh and then also of course like lots of joint articulation like spine work and um various joint articulations which I which I really really love. Um and so that's just yeah on, ongoing work. Um so that would be the brief of where I'm at like specifically and maybe a bit generally with the training at the moment. Yeah, nice. There's a few things I want to mention. So yeah, Ben briefly mentioned, like we actually connected first online 
And this is a little shout out to a previous guest, Vic Hawksley, because he had a little shout online train Vic. training group uh, back in the day. And then I think we met actually, or you uh, noticed me <laughs> within the group and then was very active in reaching out and then making this relationship real. So I really have to thank you for that. And that's one thing that uh, you always continue to inspire me to do is to make some of these relationships that we forge or that we um, uh, that we interact with online, that they, they're real people behind there and you can actually meet them. And so that's why I do, when I can, some traveling around or um, uh, even hosting when people come to Melbourne as well to try and meet these figures of the imagination sometimes on Instagram and then you make these into, okay, these are actually real people where you can uh, forge real relationships. So, you know, Ben and mine, uh, secret project in the uh, movement culture is the uh, movement friends hashtag, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> the MFers. Where the real gains are the friends you make along the way. So I just, have to, I just have to drop that one in there. Um, but otherwise, you mentioned also the rail balancing and, you know, yeah, just uh, briefly on that. I do think that that is a very, very interesting um scope of work because i think the quality and playing around with the um uh, the skill of balance there's something inherently very playful that i think connects people to uh like maybe like a, a nature from childhood and one reference that i will uh i'll talk on is like uh you know like hand balancing for us it was something that there's something that captures the um fascination right because there's something very playful with it but then for my father who is like 70 years of age you know he always sees me do all this sort of stuff and you know for most of the time even all the softer stuff it still seems like uh, a little bit unapproachable for them but then he saw me when we were traveling uh one time out and uh, Northern Territory, and there was this perfect rail. It was just about like a foot off the floor. So if you fell off, you know, like no no trouble whatsoever. I think it was like, I don't even. a precious thing. Yeah, I don't even know what. It was like to, for, for parking or something. And I was balancing on this rail and he, and, he, and he saw it. And then he just wanted to jump on immediately. And we spent like 30 minutes where I was like assisting him, giving him a spot and stuff. And he's suffering from some of these like uh, foot issues as well. And so he was like using this rail and getting a lot out of it. And I, I saw like this inner child come out from him and, you know, it was like really at that moment where I was like, wow, like rail balance, balance, there's something very, very powerful in this material, which you can use to, um, to capture, I guess, people who sometimes might view the wider scope of all the rest of whatever we do is being like, oh, you know, like that's not for me. You know, there's something like almost friendly some uh, about just balancing like on uh, like a low-lying rail or, or, or stick that most people would be like, yeah, I'll give that a, a, that a try, try. And then from there it can get, you know, quite deep and quite captivating quite quickly. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're absolutely on the money with that, man. And like that, um, what was inspired in your father when he saw you and just that, that curiosity and that that interest to jump in and give it a go. Like I think that's what it in many ways, that's what it's all about. It's about tapping back into that that feeling, that state. Um, and that's what I put a lot of faith in with this practice because as you know, and as you've met, you know, with every guest, the question is you know, every guest that's a movement teacher, you ask, well, how do you describe what movement is movement is or movement practice? And it's like, well, 
you have 20 minutes and then we can have a conversation about it, but it's very hard to come up with that elevator pitch. And even, even then it's just trying to, it's like trying to capture a cloud with, with these words. But if we can, if we can model it and if we can, you know, display it and put it out into the world with the hope of inspiring someone to, you know, like your father to see that and maybe neither of you can actually put your finger on what it is. But I don't know. There's just something cool about that. I just want to do it. And to be like, you see that with children, you, know, you go to the playground and mm-hmm. you look at children and that's exactly what happens. There's no, Oh, what do you, you know, maybe at a certain point they start talking when they're, they're getting formally educated, but before that it's just observe observation or oh, that looks fun. And you, you just join in and figure it out, figure out what, what's going on. Um, and that's so wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's a great, great story you shared. Yeah. Yeah. Like that always strikes me. And I think, yeah, it is something that um, I play around with, with the people that I guide, you know, whether it be balancing just on one foot or on a step or something like that, you always see, you know, there's, there's laughs, you know, there's joy. And I think those are qualities that we are really essentially trying to bring more into the world for, but um just uh closing the loop on what you're saying about with the training i was just going to follow up with just saying like how do you think about um uh your how do you think about goals and what you select and you know how you orientate towards them like uh you mentioned you've been working a long long time on handstand push-ups and one arm chins um but then maybe some other pieces of the practice might shift and change like yeah well how do you go about considering okay like what am i what am I going going to practice? And you know, how long should I stick with one thing versus like maybe there's some things that I I shift around. Where what goes through your mind? Yeah, the what comes up is that it's that there are different scales that we can consider to to answer a question like that, and also different lenses. So on the the topic of scale, um, we can scale things all the way out in terms of the entire lifespan which was a big motivator for me from a very early age of noticing that people as they get older tend to really suffer. And then realizing that a lot of the suffering, perhaps most of the suffering could be avoided. Um, and, and most of that suffering can be avoided through, through uh, developing a physical practice and taking care of just general health and well-being. So on the, on the scale of, you know, with an entire lifespan, my, my goals are around, um, longevity, wanting to be capable and, and, um, not depend on other people, uh, for things that I should be able to take care of myself throughout my entire lifespan. I I can't think of much worse than being just old and frail and stuck, like feeling like the body's a cage and being dependent on everyone else and being a burden on, on other people. So things that feel like they're leading me in that direction, um, I'll, I'll pick to pursue. And in that regard, just general, general subjects like strength, mobility, um, coordination, um, softness, um, you know, relaxation, uh, elasticity, that kind of stuff, um, becomes meaningful. And so then they become things I want to work on and pursue. Um, there's also like the scale of maybe where I am in my life right now. And just considering, you know, I'm 30, 35, and it seems like um, unless one chooses to take, you know, exogenous hormones that the, for most people, um, or for men at least, that um, our strength and our athletic potential seems to peak around, you know, in, in your 30s. 
um, seems to be around mid thirties. You know, some people, uh, depending on the sport or depending on what, the, what what it is that you're doing, um, you can continue to excel into your maybe maybe you reach your peak or in your around forty or early forties, but you don't see many many people getting strength PBs in their fifties or sixties or seventies. But people that have been training their whole lives, you know, if someone's just started training, then they're probably going to hit PBs. Uh, you could hit it at any at any age, but so when it comes to pursuing the particularly the strength based um, goals, it's around things that seem really cool. It's just like fuck, that's that looks cool to do. Like, wouldn't that be neat? Um, and and seem achievable, even if it might take a few years. Um, and especially things that would be achievable, you know, now. So I'm 35, and it's like, well, what 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 can I get after so I can um, you know just discover how strong I can get um, with particularly with these more calisthenics gymnastics based movements. So that's where the handstand push-ups, the one arm chin-ups come in in particular um, as well as some lower body strength work, like like pistol squats and whatnot. Um, there's also the scale of, you know, um, what's, what's useful or, or interesting. So I'm a teacher as well. So the things that I pursue are also around what would be, interesting or useful for classes and for students. So recognizing that, you know, everyone's got preferences, strength and, and, and things that they don't like strengths and weaknesses. And so if I just pursued what interests me and things that I like, that would probably leave a lot of things on the table that um, people I might work with would really benefit from. Mm. So if I get the sense that something might be useful to another person, particularly a beginner, um, even if it's not something I'm really interested in, um, Personally, I will find interest in it for that reason. And then that can be a goal. And then just on the the topic of different lenses, as I mentioned, I think you can look at it from the maybe three simple lenses of things that, you know, make sense intellectually, things that feel good and things that, um, you know, make sense for the body. So, um, you know, I'm a big fan of philosophy. So there might be certain things that I can relate to certain philosophical topics or esoteric topics. So I'm like, oh, that's interesting on that. The idea of it's interesting. So I'll pursue it for that reason. Um, you know, there might just be something that uh, for particularly for rehabilitative purposes um, for the body, things that I recognize my structure would really benefit from. Um, you know, I tend to be more tight and and structurally stable and less um, kind of open by, by nature, it seems. And so I really value and the body really values like you know, mobilizing, opening things up and softening, mm. for example. Um, and then also noticing like the, my emotional reaction to thing and to things and not necessarily always following what feels good, but just noticing like if it doesn't feel good, does it not feel good, you know, emotionally? So this is not just in the body, like something could feel actually fine in the body, but there might be a, you know, a, a, a volatile or negative emotional response to it for some reason. And mm. so it's like, why is that? Is it is it that this is something that's not actually going to serve me right now, or is this actually exposing something that would be really worth pursuing? Um, yeah, it might be. Oh, this is just making me really frustrated, and it's totally irrational because this doesn't like I'm just standing on my. It doesn't matter what I'm doing, you know. It doesn't really matter, but it's still getting to me. Mm. Okay, maybe I can work with this and use it as an exercise to practice not not allowing trivial things to get to me, you know. Um, so th those could be lenses that I look through to develop those goals. And a lot, a lot of it's intuitive at this point. It's, it's just kind of might be starting something that seems cool or interesting. And then just like diving into it and then seeing if it can be relevant to my life. Um, you know, looking at it from one of those different scales or from those different lenses.
Yeah, I like it. And, you know, one thing I um, always really appreciate is, you know, you you think through things with a high amount of intention. You know, you're always very clear with uh, when you make choices that um, they're not just always, they're, they're not just like throwaway choices, you know. I'm, I'm just going to do this for whatever reason, you know. you've When I ask you questions, you always seem to have a layer of like, deep consideration to going okay like that's why I'm, I'm doing it and even as you rattle off like the way you've um, gone through these different perspectives then you know it gives me also insight or more things that I can also borrow to be like oh, okay yeah those are like good reasons you know and maybe those reasons that I had at the back of my mind as well and now they've become becoming more to the front and then from that you get more intentional with the focus that I can put into my life and my practice as well. So very cool. Yeah. I think there's a like the risk is that often we make decisions not for an intellectual reason, might be a physical or an emotional reason. Mm-hmm. And then we look to rationalize it afterwards. So the yep. the challenge there is, you know, it's the you know the risk of the overanalysis, I suppose, but it's like, am I, is this explanation true or am I just looking for an explanation? Um, but, but I think it is really important to have an intention behind what you're doing because that defines whether what you're doing is good or bad. Like, that's a big point I like to make to, I I think it's crucial. And I make it a lot with my students, which is that you see this in the fitness industry a lot. And it's what really confused me and would frustrate me, um, where, and, and, and and the average person is, is very cognizant of this. We hear this all the time. And like, there's so much information out there and it seems so contradictory, one person says that this is good and this is bad. The other person says the opposite. And how do we make head from tails? And um, I think it it's important to consider that there are perhaps two layers of truth or two two types of truth. There is objective truth. There is that which is capital T true. And then there's subjective truth. That's which is true for each individual. And I suspect that objective truth is unknowable to at least the ordinary person, myself included. And so when we present things as being absolutely right or wrong, good or bad, this is a subjective truth being presented as an objective truth. Mm. And as soon as we realize that, then we can start to put into context whether this information I'm being given is actually relevant to me. And the way it's relevant to me is in relationship to my intentions or my goals. So what what I what knowing what I want to do means that Every impression I receive, every bit of information that I take in, every possible choice I have can now get categorized as either helping me to achieve my goal, it's going to impede me from getting to my goal, or it's irrelevant. Um, and like that's the di- that's the difference between like a wonderful experience in hell. I think it's 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 feeling like you're making a you know a choice. Things aren't just happening to you, but that you're making choices that are aligned that are good and what makes them good is that they're aligned with your intentions. Yeah. Well, and I think also the um, source of that confusion as well is the, um, is energy conservation because, you know, when you have all this field of information and uh, you have to decipher what is relevant to you and your context, that decision-making process costs more energy than just going, okay, I just want to be told the right answer and have certainty that, in my context that it's the right answer and to make a mistake, which is perfectly natural and we should be doing this also costs more energy because then you have to 
one, understand that you're making a mistake and then two, go, okay, what's the next uh, thing I need to do? More research, you know, there's like, I think when for a lot of us sometimes you just want the easy answer, but unfortunately actually going for the hard answer, which is no, you know, do the work. Um, that's that's really the the right way of going about it rather than just going, okay, yeah, I just want to know like the best exercise for leg development, you know, right. if, there, right. if, there, if there is such a thing. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's okay to want to have it like the answer because in some cases it's, it's important. If you're in severe pain and, you know, that's not caused by and being hit by a car or something, you're just like my fucking back hurts all the time. Mm. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe you've tried everything as well. Like, you know, you, you take your painkillers and physio and whatnot, mm. but it still keeps happening. And you're like, maybe you realize, oh, exercise is key. And like, I, it, it's, it makes sense to want to get that answer. And in some cases, I think it's okay to, to, it's okay to desire that. And in some cases, in a lot of cases, you, um, it's appropriate to find in often cases, a teacher or, um, a, uh, like a practitioner who can just say, Hey, well, try this, this, I believe this is the the issue. Mm. I think the important thing though, is that it's just pursued with an intention to, or an intention to follow a trajectory of becoming more and more self-sufficient. So it's like, I'm seeking out a teacher to get the information now, mm. but this is part of my journey of becoming a better, a better learner, better at you know, figure, be, figuring out how to figure things out for myself. Mm. Um, it's like, like the school process at first things have you know, done very like hold your hand A to B to C and then you go to university and you got a bit more levity and you do a master's degree or a PhD and it, it, it opens up the degrees of freedom for you to become more and more self self-sufficient. Mm. Um, I think the risk is when you just, you're always pursuing things of like just depending on other people. Yeah. 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 That's like the stages of the, uh, the learner's maturity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a good way of putting when, it. When you get these uh, boundaries taken away and um, you don't sit down and consider these, you know, you can either thrive or you can get really lost mm-hmm. as well, right? So, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's interesting way of, of putting, about, um, putting it. But um, I guess for yourself then, um, you know, with this whole movement practice, like what, what got you into all of this, you know, when did you start considering it? Okay. Like, you know, I'm doing like, I know you've always been like physically inclined, involved in sports, that sort of thing. But when did you start going, okay, like I'm doing like a, a, a movement practice or a practice, which is like affecting me in many other layers. Like what was the sort of entry point there and the, and the turning point? Mm. Well, the, 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 there probably was a point that led to the movement practice as I, as I, as I practice it today. Um, and to get to that, I suppose um, it would be a product of a couple of lines. One would be developing the physical practice and having this real, I don't know, maybe a proclivity or just a really, really enjoying teaching. Um, you know, I, I, I was asked, to start to teach things, you know, when I was very young boxing and my, my instructor realized that I was really into the, the, the learning process itself and then asked me to help teach a little bit. And I just really loved that and realized from a, an early age that teaching is, a, it's, it's a natural evolution of being a, a, a devoted student, a serious student is that it allows you to test what you know and to, 
it's great impetus to continue to learn more um, and to look at what you know from different angles. So there was that that real desire to teach and and that curiosity. Um, it was noticing, like I mentioned, that you know, a lot of people have a lot of problems that seems like they'll be solved or prevented with with the movement practice, with some sort of physical yeah. physical practice, and that seems to be something that's really really in, in a deficit in our world and in our culture, you know, from a very young age, I remember hearing about the obesity statistics and the increases in cardiovascular disease and cancer and diabetes. And those, those, those trend lines are only going up and you, you look around as well and you see it um, and pe- people being in pain. And so it's like, well, how do I, you know, if I'm going to be a teacher and if I'm going to pursue this physical practice, like what, wanting to know about that. Um, and a big part of that was inspired by my own pain. Um, you're getting chronic back pain when I was 13, 14, just, just from walking around the shopping center, mm. thinking, this this doesn't make sense. This can't be right. I, I and I exercise. You know, I like you said, I play sports. I exercise. I, I eat pretty well. Like, but I'm in I'm in pain. Something something's going on. Yeah. You know? Um. So having these questions, you know, these mysteries of like just just this burning desire to to want to figure it out, um, both for myself and you know for other people, and um, I suppose also also noticing that. You know, the fitness industry is very oriented towards certain types of movement. You know, you know, our culture is like very bodybuilding or, or sport, like competitive sports. Um, and that that seems to serve people in in helping them with pain and and whatnot to a point. But then there's also a lot, it seems to be a lot of gaps. So I remember um I started personal training when I, I moved to um to Canada in 20, 2012. And um, yeah, got got a job at a gym there, personal training, and started to started to research, uh, particularly the work of people like Stuart McGill, like these researchers who, mm. like Stuart McGill in particular, is a bit of a, a bit of a rebel, kind of a re- contrarian within his field, and was getting great results. So I'm always just had this sense of like, if you want to get really great results in in any field, you can't just follow, you know, just what what's standard. You got got to be a bit of a rebel or you know, break the rules a bit or try to look, look outside the box. So when I started to experiment with that kind of, you know, some of the the work of Stuart McGill and um, started practicing a bit of yoga and realizing there's a lot of benefit to that and um, discovered um, I was recommended and then really dived into Kelly Starrett's work, becoming a supple leopard and all the mobility ward stuff. And that was really great and inspiring and, and useful. Got a lot of benefit out of that for me and my clients. And I was just realizing that what I was doing was, was was starting to become more and more different from what the other trainers and other people in the industry were doing, hmm. but getting really, really good results. Um, so I'm like, okay, there's keep heading in this direction. Keep, keep being curious, keep looking for that stuff. That's like outside the box. And, and I guess parallel to that, the other line was just my interest in, in philosophy and wanting to know what the fuck is going on in with all this, you know, mm-hmm. um, being heavily inspired by things like the matrix, getting obsessed with that, um, and thinking, yeah, there's, this is more than entertainment. There's, there's something going, there's something that this is pointing to, um, you know, re- reading, reading philosophical books. I remember reading a book of essays about the philosophy of the matrix and, um, and then from that getting, awesome. learning, learning about different philosophers, you know, and, and going off into that. And, um, and so, yeah, developing this real curiosity about wanting to know what's going on in this world, you know, what's, what, how do we exp- like, We've got this scientific method that explains so much materially, but it doesn't explain a lot about human psychology and and human behavior. There's a lot of mystery there. Hmm. And that seems a lot of those questions that I had, those gaps seem to be addressed at least by 
you know, philosophy and then, um, you know, Eastern spiritualism and, um, and whatnot. So then when I, uh, when I was working in, in, in a gym as called, um, good life, good life fitness, which is one of the biggest or the biggest gym franchise in Canada. And, um, there was another trainer there who was, uh, just blew me away. His name is Joff. Joff, if you're listening, um, you know, I, I miss you. I love you very much. And I hope you're doing well. Um, and, he's this, you know, beautiful fucking jacked, um, jacked guy who was doing these like lizard crawls on the ground, like crawling on the ground and rolling and handstands and, um, you know, chin ups and, but it would, all, would also be in the weight room, you know, do it lifting dumbbells and barbells, like deadlifts and using the machines. And when I talked to him, he just had, um, he was just so out there, you know, such, such a, such a unique man and had all these ideas around philosophy and, and, and relationships and, and sex and, um, and, uh, movement. And just, it, it was just so, it's so intriguing. So I would ask him, you know, what are you doing? And he explained that a lot of the fit, the movement practice he was taking from a guy named Ido Portal. Um, and, and he wasn't studying under Ido directly. He's just finding these you know YouTube videos and this old blog that many of, many of your guests and listeners I'm sure know all about. Um, and so I just dived into that and it just seemed so perfect because here's this guy who's talking about and teaching movement. He's outside the box. He's obviously very intelligent and he's framing it, not just about the physical benefits, which of which there are many, and even just starting to integrate some of his work into my own practice. I was realizing, oh, this is the next step. You know, this is, this is taking all this stuff I've been learning and kind of bringing it all together. This is, feels very complete, but then he was also framing it in this philosophical, um, what I later learned to be kind of esoteric way, which also spoke to me. It's like, oh, this guy's like bringing it all together. You know, he's bringing all the, all the physical practices together, this general movement concept, um, and trying to understand, I guess, like the first principles and like just these fundamentals of it, um, and 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 the breadth of it, um, as well as the depth, but then also bringing in all this other stuff, this, this philosophy, this, this, um, yeah, this spiritual stuff. Like it just, it felt like it was the whole package. So then I just died, like started reading the blogs, watching the videos, practicing, practicing. And, um, yeah, that, that would have been the start is like meet, meeting Joff and, um, learning about it from him and then just diving in and, and, you know, what, what is it? 13 years? No, not 13 years, 11 years later. Um, here we are. Yeah. Very, very cool. Uh, you know, I think that, um, story is very common for a lot of us, right. You know, coming across all those, uh, all those writings and, you know, just, for, um, you know, f for me seeing, as you describe it, like this intersection between this like physical world, which is normally separated in the world of like athletes who are most normally usually you know not very well spoken or not not speaking uh not speaking well on topics outside the physical realm let's put it that way yeah uh, not many people doing that crossover and then you know here's this guy uh doing that uh with what seems you know he's very um talks in a very like uh persuasive way as well so a very cap cap captivating way and so yeah. yeah very very natural to be drawn in like we all have been so yeah um you know i guess that brings us now to the uh the present 
as you said, you know, you've been diving into this for a very long time and, you know, you have, for what it seems like from a young age, a natural proclivity to teach and share with others as well. And, you know, you have your own group up on the central coast of New South Wales in Australia called the Meditative Monkey, which I have visited many a time, had the pleasure to train with you guys. Um, and so, yeah, why don't you just uh, take us through the story of, you know, the the group there, um, how you started it, what's the idea behind, well, you know, even the name, Meditative Monkey, is an interesting one as well. Um, yeah, I'd be keen just for you to share on that whole story. Sure. Well, as I mentioned, I was living in Canada from 2012 and uh, came back to Australia in 2020, start of 2020. And um, that was a very organic decision. I, I'd met my my now wife and she was pregnant um, at the end of 2019. And um, my mother was was very sick and in Australia. And um, it just, you know, these things all came together and it felt right to move back. Um, it was very sad to leave. I'd kind of built a bit of a life for myself there and made many really close friends, but, and then had many great, great students, clients as well. Um, but we decided that it would be best to come back. Um, so we, I, I came back at the start of 2020 and my, my son was born shortly after. And um, obviously I needed, I needed to continue to work and wanted to continue to practice. And um I took a bit of a hiatus from my my training. I'd been doing the Edo Portals online coaching um, after the encouragement of, of people like Tom, our, our current teacher, Tom, who I'd met in Thailand at Edo's movement camp in 2018. Um, he encouraged me uh, to, to, to do the, the Edo's online work. So I'd been doing that for a couple of years, um, but put that on pause, came back to Australia and, you know, it was like, well, you know, time to, you know, figure things out, what's going on in the scene over here. And to, you know, I, I knew that I wanted to do my own thing. I'd, I'd already started to head in that direction at the work I was doing in, in Toronto, in Canada. Um, I was kind of running, you know, I started to have more private clients outside of the gym and started to run my own classes and just knew that, realized that the scope of what I wanted to do, it just, it, it, there's too much friction in trying to work in, a, at least in a typical gym. Um, you know, I thought maybe I'd be able to find a kind of a movement gym or like some maybe a yoga studio that's a bit more open. Um, but I knew that chances were that I would probably have to do it myself. Um, and I thought that would be a good challenge too, like, you know, to start your own business and try to do it myself and think, see if I can put the theory to the practice of, I thought I could do it. Let me see if I can actually do it. So uh, when I got back here, I, you know, it'd been so many years since I lived here that I, I didn't really have any connections or friends who lived here anymore. So I just started like looking around to see what was going on with the, the gyms, you know, maybe see if I can find a place I could work, teach them classes and started to get a few things happening. Um, you know, I kind of saw one gym that was a, I later found out was a functional patterns studio um, and met the teacher there who was great. And he, he connected me with some people he thought I might like to know. And they connected me to some more people. And um, I ended up actually planning. My first thing I was going to run was a, a seniors class at a local um yeah, like fitness studio. Uh, but then unfortunately, as we all know, around what March, April, COVID hit and the first people to um, kind of withdraw from 
public life were the seniors. And in this area, it's predominantly seniors. I think it's like 65% of people are over 65, something like that. Wow. Yeah, um, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. I, I suspect that's changing. It feels like a lot of people are moving in from Sydney and a lot of younger families, but mm. historically, yeah, quite a, a bit of an older area. And so, um, yeah, that that obviously that that opportunity had to go on pause for the time being. And, um, you know, eventually everyone was locked down. And so then it just became, I want a place where I can train. Um, you know, the gym shut down. So it's like, well, I, I, I got to, I, I, I want to keep practicing. I want to keep training. You know, um, my son mm-hmm. had just been born. So actually COVID was a blessing in that regard. So I could spend a lot of time with him, but I always had a lot of time to practice. So I started setting up, um, setting up a studio at the, the house here. This is, um, you know, my, my parents own the place. Um, and then my wife and I, you know, live here and I started converting the, you know, the garage big enough to convert into a bit of a studio. And so um, I started to do that, you know, just getting some equipment. Like I was, I remember refreshing the rogue fitness website compulsively trying to get a squat rack and whatnot, because, you know, there were, it was so expensive during that time. (laughs) It was expensive and just things will go out of stock immediately, immediately, you know? So I would, um, I would just be refreshing, just getting barbells and squat racks and, and places to set up the rings and, um, you know, I, uh, yeah, just started setting up a place to train for myself and, but also, you know, concurrently I was reaching out to, you know, old, old contacts, old friends from school or, you know, just people around and, um, uh, yeah, just, just had some people that were keen to train with me. So we started you know, meeting out at some public parks and just doing some one-on-ones. Um, and eventually I had enough people, um, that it was worth running a class you know, enough people that would be keen to do something in the group. So I started doing that in the park outside. And, um, you know, eventually as as the, the couple of years went by and we were, the lockdowns passed, at least in New South Wales, and we could train inside again, started bringing it into the into the studio here. And um, it's just been gradually growing since then, like very, you know, slowly, organically. Um, I've made attempts to, to market it, you know, on social media and whatnot. Um, but I find that it just seems like the, the, maybe the best way and maybe the only way is just through organic growth, word of mouth referrals, um, just doing good work and, and, and exposing that good work. Um, I don't, not to say that social media is totally futile, but um, I, I just realized you can't really rely on it to, to bring people in. It's more about exposing the stuff that you've gotten as a, maybe as a portfolio more than, more than anything. Um, but then specifically with, with what it's about and with the name, well, it's something that's kind of revealing itself to me as time passes as well. Um, it was a, it is kind of actually a name that came up um, in, in conversations with Joff, um, that same, same man I mentioned in Toronto. Um, and I actually eventually used it. My, my first use of it was as a gamer tag on um, <laughs> PlayStation. So it's now still when I'm you know, playing Apex Legends, people, have you ever seen Meditative Monkey? That's me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> nice. I was, I, was, I was stoked to get it. Um, and then, uh, yeah, just I, when I was thinking about the name, I'm like, well, that's just, it's just so obvious. Like, it's, it, and it's one of those things that it's kind of like I was saying earlier about, you know, you, you make a decision and then you try to is- explain it intellectually later. It feels like that. Mm. It's just the name just feels right. And then, like I said, it's sort of, I can, I can, I can come up with reasons for it. And then even the more I learn and the more I practice, like even this last week workshop you and I attended um, a couple of weeks ago in Canberra with Juan, Juan Rueda, um, there were things he said that made me think, well, yeah, that's, yeah, that that's the meditative monkey, you know. That that's that's what that's what we're doing. Hmm. So I I think a simple way to explain it would be, 
I think of it as, you know, the monkey represents, it can represent many things, but it's, it's, it's the body, you know, it, it's, it's the, the chaos, it's the wild, the wild aspect of a human being. It's the childlike aspect of a human being. You know, it's a monkey. I don't know. For some reason, a monkey seems childish to me more than like an ape or a gorilla feels like an adult, you know? Yep. Um, so the monkey's like the, 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 the child or the, the playful, the chaotic, the, the silly, the physical, the wild. And then, um, to be meditative, it's, it's this, it's this other thing. It's this, it requires this awareness that, oh, there is a monkey, you know, what's this monkey about? Mm. You know, what, what's it, what's going on? I don't know what's going on. Okay. To figure out what's going on, I better just start watching what's going on you know, observing what's going on. Um, and so this kind of contrast of the, yeah, just the, the, the chaotic, the primal, the childish, the silly, the playful with the, the contemplative, the, the observer, the, 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 um, yeah, the considerate, um, the, 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 the meditative, it just, I feel like that's really encapsulates what it is that we're trying to do. And I think it even encapsulates the kind of people that I really like. And the kind of people that I'm drawn to are the people that have this, you know, that these, these, these almost polarities of like super serious self-work, you know, but then fucking ridiculous. And like, I love <laughs> that, you know, just that, that contrast, mm-hmm. um, that that's really beautiful to me. And so, yeah, it's just, as, as I guess as a guiding principle, that's what I try to, what I'm, what I'm trying to practice and pursue and what I try to bring into the work. Yeah. It's, it's like something innately human about that we can have these very different qualities but still be like you, right? Like you yeah. don't have to be confined to be like the super serious person all the time, although, you know, many people seem to portray that all the time. But, you know, you can ride on the complete other side of the spectrum and still be you and be appreciated mm-hmm. for that. And that's a really nice thing. And maybe that's, you know, a little bit of the uncovering or the unshielding that is part of the work that we need to, um, yeah, uncover from all ourselves because, you know, uh, at least I feel when I, um, feel like connected and then also, uh, willing, ready and able to be authentic self, then you can, you know, chuck these silly jokes around and be really playful, but then turn around and then be really serious on a particular type of topic as well. And that's, there's something really beautiful in that. Yeah. And I think it's like people tend to veer to one or the other, you know, people tend to be maybe more serious or, or more silly. And I think to have the capacity for both, it's, 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 a, it's, it's like a handstand. What what draws you to a handstand is, you know, I mean, it's cool and it's impressive, but to me, it signifies that that person has worked towards that. Like that's been earned. No one can, no one is organically doing handstands. Hmm. It, it, it speaks to effort and intention. And so to be someone who can flip between serious and stupid, you know, it, it, it doesn't happen organically. I, I don't suspect. I think it, it, if someone can be like that, it's like, oh, you're, there's, there's some, there's something going on here. There's a, there's an effort and an intention to what's going on. Um, like you're not just, you know, you know, it's like some people that just can't help but be silly. And it's kind of, maybe that's gets, it's cute, but it can get annoying. And similarly with someone who's serious, like you can't help but be serious. Come on, man, relax. But to know that you can have both. It's like, that's, yeah. Like, I mean, how cool. Yeah. And so with the work that you share, like, 
is this more purely in the physical realm, like the physical practice, or do you share like outside of that? And, you know, uh, you know, I gather like for the majority of it, it is the physical practice. And, you know, if so like, why do you focus on that? And then if you share more outside of that, then yeah, like wh- what is it or how, how do you share that? Yeah, it, I, I try, I try to do more. Um, I think it's really important still to ground it in the physical because, well, because, because it is grounding, physical is grounding. It's, it's very practical. And I found that um, I spent a fair few years in like really heavily in the academia of this physical practice, like doing a degree in exercise science, for example. And it left me with a, it left me with a really high, like uh, developed ego um, and feeling that I knew a lot, but then when it was time to put it into practice, I wasn't able to, and in many cases it would backfire. Um, So I think it's, yeah, I think it's really important to, um, to ground things in the physical and to in and especially in our culture, it seems like that's what that's one of the major components that's out of balance. Is that we live in we seem to live in this culture that's very head oriented um, and and emotionally oriented. It's like we're being comp- like drawn to what we like and dislike. Um, but yeah, there's, there's you know, we just look around. You know, not many people are actually moving just full stop. Um, so that's clearly a, a need. And then the community aspect is also really important. You know, bringing people together in person. You know, that's why, like you mentioned, you know, reaching out to you and not just having it be this online relationship, um, which is just as a side topic, that's something I learned to appreciate through years of online dating. Um, nice. It's it's, it's yeah. one 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 tip that I can give anyone who's still single and looking to you know find someone, especially if you're doing it online, as many many people are now, um, myself included. I met my wife on on Tinder, um, but what I learned through that process is that there is a great temptation and um, tendency for us to create and it create an idea of who someone is when it's just online. Mm. Um, I I felt that with you meeting you in person, this idea, this celebrity impression of like, Oh, that's Fayon from (laughs) the passive thing. He does his podcast and his YouTube videos. And I've seen, I I've only ever observed him passively through this screen. Um, You know, he's speaking to me, but I'm not, it's this one, it's a monologue. I'm not speaking back. Um, and I found that, yeah, with online dating, you know, that's where I learned it, is that you you would create this impression of a person. And if that if you don't meet up pretty quick, then when you do, if if and when you do eventually meet, it can be um it can be devastating because your impression what 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 you've built up in your mind um is not reality. Hmm. Um and, and it doesn't matter how well you try to convey who you are online, it's like it's never going to capture it because we're you know, physical creatures and there's so much going on that's beyond just just words um and, and talking so being in person you know reaching out to people that you connect with online if you can meet them i think it's a wonderful thing obviously and mm. um that's what i'm really trying to imbue in, in the practice as well making it physical and making it about bringing people together um so that would be the that would be the, the sort of the bread and butter i try to keep it as grounded in that because I do notice for myself, I, uh, I, you know, I like to go off into the the conceptual and and also dive into the spiritual. And um, there's a time and a place for that, but that's not what I'm selling it as. And so if if I just say this is an exercise class or a movement class, and then I'm, we're just talking about you know esoteric topics for 90 minutes, I would understand that people would be you know disappointed or w- wouldn't turn up again. Mm. Um, but I I think it's it, it does matter. Like it's it's not you can't 
they're, they're not separable. And I think to make real, real progress, real change, it requires balanced work. It, it doesn't, it can't just have occur through work on the body alone. And, and even with this movement practice, what I love about it is that if you try to approach it automatically, just habitually and mechanically, it's not going to work because mm. it's, it's so much about learning new things and, and challenging your, your habits and tendencies and your preconceptions. And so I think organically other stuff will come in, but then for certain students who are, I, I sense are more inclined towards the more woo-woo topics, you know, we'll, we'll discuss that as well. Um, or maybe they'll ask about it. And I, I leave little hints or like mention things that I think will, will kind of capture the right person to, to, um, who wants to dive deeper into that. But yeah, try to keep it grounded with the body and with the community, <clears throat> excuse me. But, um, I think un- inevitably other stuff will come in. Yeah. Yeah. Like one thing, and this is what I gained from that trichotomy workshop as well was that, you know, like this, this, this concept of the body being very grounded as being like a very constant, reliable thing that's there with you day to day, which you can act on and, and experience change through, as opposed to, you know, this is what I was thinking through afterwards was thoughts and emotion are very transient, you know, they almost can't be trusted when you don't really understand them because from even one second to the next, you can be experiencing a hot flush of emotion. And then it changes from that to uh, frustration to like happiness, just, (laughs) just without any sort of control. And the same thing with your thoughts, you know, your mind can be just going from one place to the other. So like the, the untamed there is uh, yeah, it's almost like too, too all over the place to, Mm to to be as sometimes as a as like oh like yeah a very tricky starting point i I would say whereas with the physical practice you know like your arm is still going to be your arm tomorrow but over the course of some months working on the arm it can be like a slightly more skillful arm or a slightly more stronger arm which is pretty cool that you can then see that and then be like okay like that that was real yeah yeah and a lot of it's just through observation. It's just realizing that the people, like through myself and then in working with others and then just looking around and seeing people that seem very well-developed and, and balanced people, um, it doesn't seem to happen without work on the body. And, and and then you even look at, you know, all the older spiritual traditions. Almost all of them, if not all of them, as far as I know, um, at least have some body component, if not start with the body. Um, for for all these same reasons, so it's it's clearly important, and it's something I, I'm really suspicious of is when we'll discuss things like being a strong-willed person, um, for example, um, without really having a sense of what it means to be strong physically. Mm. Like I think these things start as you know physical, tangible, felt experiences, um. And they, they have to be before we can really understand what, what that's like on, on an emotional or intellectual level. Perhaps you can get there without work on the body, but I think that would require a certain, uh, probably a lot of guidance, like very careful guidance, and then probably a devotion to a certain path. And you know now we're all over the place. So I, I think it's unlikely that you're just going to happen across that. But yeah, I find that just what starting with the body and grounding it in, that's the most useful, most practical. Mm, yeah, yeah. That's, it is a good point. And as you said, yeah, it's always like, in various ways, you know, phrases, body, mind, and soul, body, mind, and breath, um, body, mind, spirit, you know, those uh, 
sort of just high, uh, going about the same thing in, in different terms, right? So yeah, how do you, uh, so, you know, talking about sort of guiding people and, and, and teaching um, people, uh, you know, let's focus say, like on, on the physical practice. Like what do, how do you think about like education, curriculum, presenting it to the people that come to the meditative monkey? Like let's start with, you know, the, the new person that walks in, you know, like how does that interaction go with them and what are you, what are you understanding and what are you thinking about? Okay. Like this is material that might be helping them or is a good starting point for them to get into. Yeah. That's a really good question. So if someone new comes in, it's just, it's a conversation. So it's asking, you know, who are you? Why Why are you here? What are you looking for? What can I help you with? Um, perhaps, you know, how did you find out about me and what what's your impression of what I do and how do you think I can help? Um, and it's something that's a, it's a really good part of the practice of being a teacher for me, especially is is the practice of listening. And, and so I try to just ask lots of questions and, and get an impression of, of where that person is and, and what they need. Um, in terms of the specifics you know, I I find that there are certain movement patterns that that most people benefit from some some version of. Um, so I generally try, like most people I work with, if it's a one on one context, probably only see me once a week, and this might be the only serious physical practice they do in the week. You know, maybe they they go hiking or go to the beach once in a while, but a lot, I find a lot of people don't really have a lot of people that come to me at least don't really have a um, a, a routine physical practice. Um, some do, and then maybe they're looking for just help to to assist with that. So then because of that, I and if I'm only seeing someone once a week, I'll, I'll try to offer them something that's quite comprehensive, like a full body um, kind of program that we work on. And um, we'll work on movement patterns that are as get you the most bang for your buck. So I'd like I like to work with things that develop as many qualities as possible at least it's to start with. I think it is useful as time goes on, as you become more advanced to do more um, kind of isolated, um, develop isolated qualities um, in, in part. That, that tends to happen more later on uh, in my experience. But at first it might be something like, you know, the humble split squat. I'm a big fan of split squats for for beginners, for example. The reason being that you have, um, you know, the, fle- the, the flexion and extension on the front leg, like a squatting pattern, that pressing movement, but you also have what's often neglected or almost always neglected in, in our culture is the extension of the um, the rear hip, the rear leg. And so you get that nice um, mobilization of the rear hip. The feet being on that, that narrow stance helps develop balance. Um, embedded in that might be some cues on how to organize the pelvis and spine um, you know, relative to the legs. And it's very, it's very scalable. You know, you can set an object. So you know, you might just, if I've, I've worked with 80 or 80 year olds who we just work on a standing, like an isometric split stance, holding a dowel nice. and just spend, spend time accumulating, um, uh, accumulating time there and building conditioning. And then eventually, you know, taking away the dowel, just finding that stance, then maybe bring, reintroduce the dowel again and work to a, a target that's only an inch or two, you know, low, and then gradually working towards getting to the floor. Um, you know, the, embedded in that as well could be ideas like like reps and sets, you know, 
uh, tempo, which I think is really important. As, as you know, from the type of practice that we do, where tempo is a very strict variable as well um, that, that's measured um, very strictly. Um, so yeah, and, and then that's an element that can that has a lot of room for progression or regression. So you can obviously add weight to it. Um, you could increase range of motion. You could increase volume. Um, and you can have the weight distributed in different ways. So just using that by an example, I, I, I find that a lot of people benefit from some sort of split stance to start with. Um, and then it's like, for, I, I guess I just have a, a sort of, what would you say, like a, a, a template or a, a kind of a, 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 a excuse me, like kind of a, a framework of what I'm um, looking to accomplish. So, you know, lower body pushes and pulls is an easy way to think of it. We've got the, you know, like a split stance, but then a pull might be a hinge movement, you know, the, um, or is generally a hinge movement. So some sort of lower body push and pull, um, some sort of upper body push and pull, you know, and then also we have the straight arm work, which, you know, I think was um, adapted from gymnastics and Edo has, has made a bit more mainstream, um, which I think is really wonderful and really useful. Uh, and then balance work, like you mentioned, like seeing standing on one leg, I think is really useful and practical. I tend to do a lot of that with beginners. Um but then if there's if that person has specific pain or, or issues they want to work with, it's a combination of asking them questions about it and being really specific about that. That's something I've learned to is really important, like as you, you know, probably you have with something like this podcast, asking the value of asking questions, where it's really strikes me how how poor we are at self-reflection. Mm. But then we can we can actually recall quite well. So for example, Someone might say that they're getting, um, you know, pain in their right hip, in the front of their right hip. And you say, okay, great. Uh, pain in the right hip. Does it come and go or is it constant? And more often than not, they'll say it comes and goes. And I've learned that that generally means that it's, me it's, it's a mechanical issue as opposed to some pathological, like, you know, you've got cancer or some, um, you know, virus or some, some external thing is, you know, causing some issue. It's like, well, if it comes and goes, suggests to me that it's probably a mechanical issue. And if it's mechanical, then I can help um, through, through our, our practice. Um, it comes and goes. When do you notice it? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Oh, well, or often it's like, oh, well, I'm not doing anything. So, ah, oh, well, that, but that's nothing is still something. So what, when you're doing nothing, what are you doing? You know, are you in the car? Are you in the kitchen? Are you, you know, um, just sitting on the couch? And it might be, oh, I notice it when I'm sitting at my desk or in the car, for example. Um you say, well, does it hurt when you're when you're walking around ever? And it might be like, it might be yes or no. But just drilling in with these these questions, it's I, I just have to keep reminding myself that this stuff might seem so obvious, but it's so important that you are you just keep narrowing it down because we don't think of it, you know, unless we're prompted. Um, so there's there's the questioning and, and getting information, but then there's also something I learned um, and re really developed an appreciation of this from studying Stuart McGill's work. I did a workshop with him. Um, when I was in Canada for uh, a couple of days and he told us about his assessment process. And he said that when he goes and gets a, a, a new client, instead of having a form with all these pre-filled questions or, or, or pre-established questions, he comes in with this a blank page. And he said, the assessment doesn't start when they get in the room. The assessment starts when they're in the waiting room and you meet them there. And it starts by observation, noticing how they're sitting, noticing how they're standing when they walk down the corridor to go to the office, don't walk in front of them, walk behind them so you can observe how they're walking. He explained that when they get into the office, he might accidentally drop a pen and he, he 
he said that, well, because they're often Canadian, they're, they're polite, they'll pick up the pen and hand it back to him so that then he can observe their hinging patterns, how they're picking things up. Because he made the point that if you ask someone to do an assessment, it'll change your mode. You'll start mm. to go into assessment mode. And that's not the condition in which they're experiencing the pain. They're experiencing the pain in organic life. And so it's asking questions, but also observing that person. And um, that's just a matter of experience, I suppose, like noticing patterns, um, developing kind of educated guesses and then testing that out with, you know, does this hurt? Does that hurt? Does this feel good? Does that feel good? Et cetera. Um, so that, that, that can sometimes change the specifics of what we're prescribing, the actual exercises. But I find actually more often than not, we're still doing a lot of the same exercises, but the the cueing, the emphasis on the cueing changes. Mm-hmm. So it might be more of an emphasis on the pelvic position, for example, or the the thoracic spine position, or you know the position of the neck, or something like that. Mm. Um, so those are the those are the two ways I would you know figure out how to start with someone new is asking a lot of questions, following kind of a lot of bang for your buck stuff. I find works pretty well that it combines strength and mobility and different skills and different qualities, but then also observation. Um, and, and constant feedback It's like, uh, you know, sending them a message after the first session. Cause I don't know how they're going to go with the recovery. Some people are sore for a week. Some people are recovered the next day. You know, how'd you go with the recovery anymore? You know, how are your symptoms, et cetera. Et cetera. And, and just being this iterative process and being really engaged in it. And that's mm. what I really love about it is having it be this, not, not knowing what's going to happen and figuring it out together. Having this journey of like, let's, let's, let's figure, let's figure you out together. Um, and, and I'll help you as best as I can along the way, just based on you know, a lot of it's just being an observer, not even expertise, but there, there are some little tips and tricks that you can add in along the way. Yeah. That's a really nice one that you picked up from that McGill workshop. I like that. It's very sneaky, but very, yeah, you could pick up a lot. And that point as well about how they're actually performing things versus when they're tasked to do things, you know, where you've said a few things and you're biasing their behavior in a certain way. I think that's a very important distinction. Uh, as well and yeah it's funny you know when people describe their um situation and especially when it comes to pain as well it it, it can become just like this uh very very fuzzy area right where the um the sensation of pain even is uh like when you dig in deeper you know it really gets you see people's minds sort of ticking over and then Normally, I find, you know, when you get them to do parts of the work, yeah, it doesn't really normally stop you from doing like, say, withholding from like a particular type of exercise. Maybe you might modulate volume and intensity like a bit more, but normally like they can almost do uh, like almost everything, if not everything. And then afterwards go, oh, like I feel really good. And yeah, it, 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 yeah it, it always like, surprises me because beforehand they might be going, Oh, you know, like my shoulder really hurts or whatever. And so, you know, you, you're also careful and you're observing that, but then they're doing, you know, whatever it is like hang a push or a pull and you're like, well, that doesn't seem to be any problem. And afterwards, Oh, I feel, I feel really good, you know? And you're like, well, (laughs) yeah. Like, isn't that an amazing thing? You know, you just, (laughs) then you seem like a wizard. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's not all cases, right? But for a lot of the cases, yeah, it, it feels like it's kind of funny. It's like the solution just seems like a bit too simple. Yeah, yeah. It often feels like you're telling people the sky is blue. Mm. Apparently, people value being told the sky is blue. So, 
at least that's how it feels. But yeah, it's and I like I think there are like there are certain ways that we certain ways of training that are really emphasized in the the movement culture world that I think are really really useful and valuable. Um having, you know, well, first of all, having clear standards. That's something I've really come to appreciate. Um, you know, it kind of relates to the idea of intention that we talked about earlier. What what's good and bad has to come back to your intention or your aim. Mm. And I've found that in a lot of even just through training myself, it would get so frustrating where so you might be in a martial arts class or something, you get told to do do 20 push-ups. You're like, yeah, but how? Because I'm doing push-ups one way and I'm dying at five. And the guy next to me is doing them a different way that's, you know, maybe a little more efficient or a little less range of motion or whatever. But because the standards aren't made clear, it's like he's done 20 push-ups and I've only done five and or he's the hero and I'm I'm lagging and it's like, what's going on here? Hmm. So having having really clear standards um and and sticking to them. Not just having it be this this theory, but actually applying them. And and you know, my students, you know, joke with our joke. It's kind of like Edo's resubmit. With me, it's no rep. Um, you know, if they're not mm-hmm. not not complying to the standard, you don't get a rep, and it keeps, yep. keeps people honest. But they appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um, working full range of motion. You know, that's that's massive. I think in that you embed your mobility work into your strength work, just with that alone, without doing specific mobility mobility work. I don't do a lot of specific mobility work with new new people. It's strength work through a full range of motion, hmm. um, which I find is is just you know it, it seems so obvious. You know, once you do it, when you, when you start doing it, but then you look around at the way most people train, the way most most people teach, and it's not you, you don't do that. Um, tempo, you know, having having clear tempo, for example, uh, and a lot of this I know it comes from like Charles Poliquin, like who Ido learned from, um, just to give him credit. But yeah, this just just having a clear kind of system and a way of approaching it. I find, I think, I think a lot of it's, that's why explains why people get such good results because they've gone into, they've done exercise before, but they haven't done, they haven't done it following certain standards being held to those standards. Um, and now that they are, it's, they're actually getting the benefit that they should have been getting from day one. Mm. Yeah. It's like this overemphasis towards just the count of quantity with like the amount of reps, no matter what the reps are or what is the weight, no matter how you sort of get it up or down uh, versus the the quality, right? Uh, and then when you focus on that aspect, there's so much more that seems to open up. Yeah. And I think, I think teachers are kind of, it's that tendency to kill with kindness. I suspect a lot of it's that you don't want to, you don't want to discourage your students or your clients. So you think, well, as long as they're turning up and, and getting the workout in, then it's great. In round of applause and good job. And I, I and I understand that, mm. but I think in the long run you do a disservice. I think there's a way of, you know, being strict in a sense with people, um, but still being encouraging. And a lot of it just comes down to offering the right progression. It's like if if is people re- trying to do something beyond their current capacity, like trying to do a chin up when they can't, they don't have full range strength with the full range of motion, and so you're. Like, you know, if you, you don't, you don't want to discourage them. So you're just like, okay, as long as it's good enough, you know, well done, you know, clap, clap, clap. Um, but you know, you reach plateaus and it causes undue strain and whatnot in the future, you know, in the future potentially. So I think, I think it's like just killing people with kindness mm. in a lot of cases. Yeah. And uh, other than the, um, I guess, uh, newcomer and person that comes to the, uh, to, to you for like one-on-one, I know you run a bunch of classes all throughout the the week, quite a few classes now, which you which you take. Um, 
So appreciate the workload that you, in addition to your own training with, with that you uh, have to do week in, week out. How do you I choose to? It's <laughs> not to really have to, but yeah, you do. You you choose. So what, what? Yeah, what what classes do you offer? How do you think about your classes and what you present in terms of the material uh, to the group? Yeah, so that's that's kind of a combination of in, of desire and seeing what happens organically. So it started with the Saturday morning class, which I just called a movement class, so I could keep it open and figure out, you know, figure out what's what's good based on who turns up. And I think a lot of that comes from my background in personal training. Most of my early career was in working with people one on one and really appreciating how you can make it very bespoke and and you can also develop really tight relationships, which which helps with the making it more bespoke. So um, I, I like to try to cater things based on where I, where I, what I think people would enjoy, what they would benefit most from, but also just who's in front of me and what they, what they seem to be, you know, resonating with and and, and what seems to fit well and, and iterating on that. So it started with the movement class, which I still, that's more of my, more of the open class, like every six weeks or so we might do a different project or a, um, a different, uh, yeah, a different project, a different, different set of, of tasks. Um, and we do work in six week blocks for, for most of the work, which is, um, I guess as a side note, that was very interesting to, you know, read about the the scientific literature around that when I was in university and, and how the, you know, it seems like six, six weeks is about the, um, the period that, um, allows someone to experience adaptations, um, from, from the, the training task. Um, and how, yeah, I, I do think a lot of the academic, um, work helped me to understand the whys behind some of the, the ways that things are taught in, in the movement culture. So the six week blocks, I think it's called a mesocycle. I want to say in the, in the literature, um, you know, we, we work in six week blocks of practice and then um, figuring out the classes. It's quite, it's a challenge. It's figuring out subjects that would be useful. So I've got a, an upper body strength class on a, on a more Monday morning, which is quite popular. Um, and that just seems to, you know, just getting the week started with some good strength work seems to vibe quite well with people. Um, uh, recently introduced a handstand class, just one. I'd love to do more. Um, and then I've got a couple of locomotion classes, one of, one of which used to be lower body, but I just recently changed it to locomotion because I got the sense that people were more interested in the locomotion material and I can kind of slip lower body strength and conditioning into a locomotion class anyway. So I feel like there's a balance of strength work in the week, some skill work with the the floor work and some mobility and then the handstands and then the movement class. Um, and also it's just figuring out people's schedule. Cause that's, yeah, it's just the practicalities of real life of, man, you know, people have, most people have jobs, not you know, eight to five or so. And, um, you know, fi- finding times, the right times that people can come in, um, the right balance of subjects throughout the week. So if someone's coming to multiple classes, they, if I, I like to think that if someone were to come to every class in the week, they would get a really good balanced experience that it wouldn't be too much or, um, it wouldn't be too much for them. Um, so a lot of just this, this organic iterative process, I'd love to do more, you know, I'd love to do another handstand class or two in the week. Um, you know, maybe some more morning classes. So I'm always looking for opportunities, but it's been a very organic process. Hmm. Um, and, and a good challenge, good work for me because I'm really comfortable with one-on-ones, but working with groups has been a, a really, really useful project because it's not something that's comes naturally to me. So that's been really fun. So say for something like a upper body strength class where maybe the material is a bit more consistent, like what, what might that actually look like? Sure. Yeah. So we, so yeah, I, I like to, even though the subjects or the material might change every six weeks, I like to keep the class structure generally the same. And again, like I'm open to iterating on it if necessary, but it's generally something like a 20 to 30 minute 
kind of warm-up preparation period. Each class, again, is 90 minutes. And that's something that is really important to me. Um, working as in a, as a PT, everything's one hour. And I would always find that I'd either run over time or feel like, you know, just couldn't get to it all. Um, and so 90 minutes seems to be a bit of a sweet spot. And I've, I've been told by other coaches um, that if I can keep it to 90 minutes, you know, uh, and, and keep paying the bills to do so, because, um, you know, I've spoken to business owners that in this field that wish they could do 90 minute classes or want to do more of them for, for those reasons, but they just, you know, their hands are tied with, um, you know, the financial aspect of it. So uh, the 90 minute classes, I find a really, a really good, good amount of time. We, we can spend a good 20, 30 minutes with preparation, um, in the upper body class specifically, we'll do a block of working towards our primary project, like more maximal strength work or you know, sub-maximal, but like that kind of more high intensity strength work. And I, I, I explained to people that the project is muscle ups. The trick there is that some of them get attached to the muscle up and start calling it a muscle up class. And then people who might be interested in joining think, well, I'm not interested in muscle up, so I'm not going to join. And I'm like, guys, it's not a muscle up class. It's a upper body strength class. And, you know, a lot of these guys really want to get muscle up. So we'll call it that, but um, or we'll frame it as being heading towards that, but it doesn't have to be about that. Um, so that, that, that can be a bit tricky, but um, we'll work on drills towards a muscle up. And the reason I think the muscle up's a good progression or a good, uh, good goal for a lot of people who are beginning is because it's that second eye and, you know, famous three eyes. It's, the integration of the pushing and the pulling into one one element with with a skill component of the transition, and you know muscle level looks cool. And even when people say they don't want to do it, I think when they start to get close to it, they they want to do it. In my experience, so we work about thirty minutes. Um, I've I've learned that doing things for time with groups is much better. Mm-hmm. Normally, one on ones will have a rep and set or set goals. I like do five by five, you know, classic yep. strengths. Um, with a with a prescribed rest, but in groups because everyone works at a different pace, uh, I realize that it's better to work for a block of time in most cases. So we'll do say thirty minutes where the goal might be to increase. Well, the, the goal is always to increase something from the week prior, and I encourage students to take notes so they're staying on top of that. Um, but within that thirty minutes, it might be to increase the the total number of reps, say, um, than you did last week. Um, so. Uh, so there is a way to build in progress, but everyone's kind of working in the same structure of time. Uh, and then we'll do some sort of accessory work or maybe not ex- accessory, secondary, some other work, like might be some straight arm strength work um, or some other other pushes and pulls that um, I think would be cool or interesting or supplement their primary strength work. So that's where I like to put in things like uh, maybe a lizard push up because I, I find that it's very hard to sell, say, locomotion, the more kind of flowy work to at least the people I'm working with. So in order to get them there, I'll start to introduce movement patterns that can develop into locomotive patterns. So like a lizard crawl, for example, but I'll put it in the context of what they're doing and familiar with. So mm. we'll do a, a lizard push up, say, and, you know, they may not be interested in locomotion. I might not even frame it as being a, an exercise that can become a locomotion element, but I might say, well, here's an element that you can work on a, a one-arm variation of, so you can get this feeling doing a one-arm push-up. You've got that nice hip mobility as well because um, of the nature of the position. So you get a lot of bang for your buck out of it. Um, it's something they haven't done before in most cases. So like, oh, this is cool. It's kind of never seen this. This is really, really neat. Um, so I might do something like that. Uh, and then we'll often finish with um, some sort of like down regulation or stillness practice. So maybe it's shaking. 
which is a popular one. And we've started to put on uh, Shake It by Metro Station. I believe the <laughs> name is called Shake, 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 Shake It, which absolutely, we've got one guy in our class, Steve. Shout out to Steve, uh, if you're listening, who um, he's an absolute unit. Um, and he fucking loves that. Whenever we put it on, like we put it on once just as a gag. Yeah. And he lit up. He became this little boy. It was so wonderful. So now we put it on every class where we do shaking, uh, especially when he's in it. Um, so we might do some shaking. We might do some stillness practice. And that's kind of, you asked earlier about like slipping in the other stuff. That's where I might start to introduce some, some concepts or some ideas that are not just about the physical practice. Um, one that I, for example, that I find really, I think is useful. I think it's a nice way to kind of bridge the movement practice into this other work is to ask students to observe sensations in the body um, while standing still or sitting still or lying still. And to notice that these sensations are different from feelings, for example. So feelings being about like and dislike. Um, so can you just observe a sensation and not assign value to it as being something that you like or don't like, just observing mm -hmm. it? Um, can you also notice that a sensation is different from a thought about the body. So can you actually sense your right hand, not just think about the right hand? And in that where it is, is embedded the concept that there are these three different perceptive lenses, so to say, of the body, the the, the emotions and the mind. And you know, th this is stuff that can get into your esoterics, but it's I think it's a very practical way of, of approaching it, just noticing it's a physical practice. So let's notice the body and notice that the body is different from the mind and different from the emotions, by example. Yeah, nice. And I, I like that format as well. You know, even when I take people, like it, it works quite well. And, you know, it is, I think, yeah, presenting material to like the non-movement practitioner, it is like you have to speak to their terms such as like how you're doing with like the muscle up project as like the main piece of work. And then within it's funny, it's like within the spaces around it, whether it be the warm up or afterwards gives you the op opportunity to present something a bit wider, which can be wider within the physical context or wider within like the observation, the other sort of qualities of mind emotion that you can start to open doors to that after a while they go, oh, okay, like that was really nice. So they start appreciating that as well. You know, I always really love sometimes with, yeah, playing with the um, the physical uh, senses, especially like the visual system at the end and, you know, like broadening and focusing and seeing like the the change in energy and uh, the, what, the, what their face, the information that their face holds as well when you start um, – getting them to go through some some of these like uh, tasks with 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 playing that and that that opens the door to going okay yeah like physical doesn't mean just doing like strength work or like mobility work like getting the splits which is the traditional way which is is expanding now but you know still is i guess like the more western australian like dominated mode of going you know like i'm i'm training that and that, that's what it's all about but you know that it can be a lot more as well. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you mentioned, you know, the body, the thought and the emotion, um, these, these three areas. And I know apart from the, um, the, the purely like physical practice and the movement practice, you're a very 
avid reader of other, as you even termed it, like esoteric um, philosophy and trying to widen your perspective in uh, in all these other various teachers. So, yeah, I wanted to just ask you about who do you draw inspiration and um, like to learn perspective from and speak a bit more about this concept of, yeah, like the, the mind, the mind, body, emotion, that, that triangle and how that affects things and um, how you sort of see the interaction of those three on your perspective in your practice. Yeah. So for those that have listened to the end, we can finally get to the good stuff. <laughs> so um well as as you know um there is a particular teacher whose work i i currently study in parallel to um you know my my physical practice um work with a group that we study it together and there's actually a physical component as well a movement practice component to it um which is the work of um george ivanovich gurdjieff um or also known as the system is also known as the fourth way and this this for me like it's it's the primary kind of spiritual system i suppose you could call it that i'm i'm interested in right now and and and, and actively learning about and practicing um just to i get I, I this the story of how i came to it i guess in brief is that um you know i mentioned that i've always been interested in this in this philosophy and and kind of these questions these big questions why are we here what's going on you know why do we behave the way that we do? Why is there war? Why is there conflict? All that. Um, you know, I read, I love books like um, Zen and the Art of Motor- Motorcycle Maintenance and, and the sequel, which I think is a, a, an even better book, Leela. Um, uh, you know, uh, attending a, you know, a Buddhist um, Vipassana retreats, you know, 10-day silent meditation retreats and going and learning about the Buddhist practices um you know even reading great great novels like uh Siddhartha I think by Herman Hesse you know wonderful books um you know fiction but still somehow still true despite being fictional and I, I guess just just to give a little bit more context my um my upbringing was around um, pretty fundamentalist Christianity I didn't realize how hardcore it was at the time but I was in a, a Christian school in primary school that taught very like fundamentalist teachings about the Bible and about Christianity. And so that was very embedded in me from a very early age, um, ideas around there being higher powers and um, how our actions here on earth don't just matter, don't just matter in isolation. They maybe matter in some bigger scheme. And, um, but because I was taught literally, you know, every, I was taught that everything in, that's in the Bible is real, is literal. Um, you know, the earth is only I don't know, 5,000 years old, however long they reckon it is. And the dinosaurs didn't exist and um, the end times are coming. Watch out. Like it's, it's, you know, the apocalypse is coming and heaven and hell and all that. So some things seem to fit and actually made quite a lot of sense and felt right. And it was so good to have this greater perspective on life, that there is something bigger going on. But then a lot of it also didn't make sense. It didn't make sense to my rational brain. I got like, you know, just to think I smell a rat, you know, something's not quite right. And so I abandoned it for a while and, you know, devoted or decided that I was an atheist and um, pursued these very rational, like intellectually oriented um, interests and, and these philosophies. But when I was in um, 
Well, I guess there was a couple of things. It was um, maybe a lot of that was inspired by taking psychedelic drugs, as it is for a lot of people, having these experiences on on psilocybin mushrooms, especially where you're like, okay, this is <laughs> this is interesting at the very least, and there's clearly more going on than I realized, um, not just outside but within me, and there's all this stuff that's I could have access to, and these perspectives and this profound sense of interconnectedness of everything you know this suddenly this sense of of not just thinking oh yeah you know everything's connected sure but actually feeling it like oh, fuck everything is connected like i am connected like even this idea of i like this feels isolationist like no like it's it's all one like wow you know and it kind of having my eyes open to that so then really thinking what's going on with all this like who, even this i this me what is that and so i remember one night i was at a party with some really really dear friends and uh, shout out to Leland, if you're listening, my old friend, I miss you very much. And um, at one of Leland's parties and uh, his good friend, Mark, who he and I just had a connection. We didn't ever really speak much, actually. We just had a connection. And I sat next to Mark one night and smoking some joints and, you know, people all around dancing and, you know, strobe lights going off and smoke machines and DJs. And I'm like, man, what's up with this I, this whole thing of me? Like, what is that? This sense of self. And he turns to me and he goes, I think you're ready for the fourth way. No, no way. That's how it happened. (laughs) That's how it happened, man. I'm like, the fourth way. How cryptic. How mysterious. You know, (laughs) fuck, I've never heard of this. What is that? And he was quickly, I believe he was taken away by a girl or distracted or something. So I didn't get to follow up and ask him. And it just stuck with me. The fourth way. I thought, okay, what is that? You know, and just kind of logged it and then went about my ordinary life. And then a couple of weeks later, I was watching this YouTube channel called Wisecrack, which I'm a big, I was a big fan of. Um, I think the original creators have left it. So it's sort of fallen off a bit, but um, they would do this series called the philosophy of, and it would be the philosophy of various pop culture things like the philosophy of South Park or, you know, the philosophy of, um, you know, Barack Obama or something, you know, and they did this episode on the philosophy of Bill Murray. And Bill Murray, you know, you're not like everyone is like Bill Murray. We've heard the myths of him taking chips off a woman's plate at Wendy's and telling (laughs) her no one will ever believe you. Um, You know, like this this mythology around this guy and you see him in the movies and you're like, he's, he's always, he's different. He's always like Bill Murray, but he's also the character. I don't know what's going on, but there's something, there's some, something happening here. And it was this discussion of, you know, his background and his training and his, interviews with him and at one point they said bill murray is a student of a system called the fourth way i'm like no fucking way (laughs) (laughs) oh my god i never heard of this and now twice in two weeks so i just googled it and started reading about it and reading about this guy gurdjieff and um this other man who spensky pietro spensky who who introduced it to um to a lot of people with his book in search of the miraculous and um this system about the nature of human beings and and life on earth and um his particular teachings on what's going on and i wanted to read more so i went to a local bookstore there was this great great old i was living right next to the main street young street in toronto and on Young Street, pretty much in the dead center at Young and Wellesley, there was a bookstore that looked as you know as old as the hills. And the, I believe the the old white haired gentleman who ran it lived upstairs in a little apartment. And 
you know, it it smelled like leather bound books and dusty and, you know, books were just all over the place. And I just went in there one day and said, Hey, uh, he goes, how can I help you? And I said, do you have any, I'm looking for books about like the fourth way. He said, Oh, the fourth way. Yeah. I think, I think we've actually got one. I think we've got something. Like, you know, this guy knew his shit, right? He's just like, yeah, it doesn't even look, it doesn't even look up, it doesn't even have a computer. Everything's pen and paper. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, the fourth way, sure. Um, and he he goes, he looks around, he goes, Oh, yeah, here you go. And it's a book called The Fourth Way. And it turned out that it was a um a trans a book of transcriptions of um meetings of, of QAs, question and answers with um a man named Bospensky, who I mentioned earlier. He was one of Gurdjieff's students who who wrote a lot about the fourth way and, and introduced it to a lot of people. So I read that and then learning about these other books that were written, I read those and, and just, this, it was interesting and it relates to the movement practice because I was discovering this at the same time and I was diving into Ido's work. And this is actually what inspired me to really connect with it is one of the, one of the ideas in this, in Gurdjieff's system is that man can't work on himself alone, that we will, we'll, we'll set a goal. We'll try to work on ourselves but that inevitably something will take us off track and we will we'll lose focus, we'll we'll go off track and we won't make it. And so it requires self-work, real self-work requires enrollment in a school. And not a traditional school like primary school, high school, university, but just a collective of people with a shared aim with it working under a teacher. And as far as I could find, there was no school around. Um interestingly, apparently in in uh, decades past, Toronto where I was living was actually a, a, um, a place where there were schools, fourth way schools um, and authors came from there, but not, not anymore. And so I'm like, well, I really love this system. That makes a lot of sense. And I want to work on myself and I can't do it alone. And it requires a school. Well, what am I meant to do? And then I found Ido's work and the way he was speaking in so many ways was what is in parallel or the same as in many cases to what Gurdjieff was saying. At the very least, it felt like it was working on the same spiritual lines and Ido also makes the point, he calls it movement culture and it's not 50-50, it's 100-100. It's, it's not just about the movement practice, it's about the working in the collective. Ido makes that point, you, try, you work alone, you're a wanker, essentially. Mm. Um, you got to work with others. And I'm like, fuck, there's, this guy's doing work and it seems to be more than just about the movements. It's work on yourself and he's talking about the same stuff and maybe this is my guy. And so it was actually when I went to um, movement camp that there was a Q&A with Ido and a student raised his hand and asked Ido if he was still, I can't remember the wording, but it was something like, are you still working um, along, you know, the, along the lines of, of, of Gurdjieff doing some work related to Gurdjieff. And this student was you know, European. He had a quite a thick accent. Um, he was at the back of the room. I just happened to be right next to him. So I heard exactly yeah. what he said, but all the people in the room, you know, it was probably a hundred plus people were like whispering, like, what, the, what did he say? Like, what, what was that? And Ido answered, um, he goes, that's a very good question. It's a question I'm happy to answer, but I want to answer it in private, not in a public setting. And he made a joke about how no one um, understood the name that was said because I love it. You know, he <laughs> reveled in it and then just left it at that. And I was stunned, man. Afterwards, I had to go to the, after the meeting was over, I went to that student and said, hey, man, did you just ask Ido about Gurdjieff? And he said, yes. I'm like, thank you. That's all I needed to know. And that convinced me that was like, you know, along with encouragement from Tom to do the online coaching, I'm like, okay, Ido's my guy. I got to, mm-hmm. I got to dive into this. Um, and I've since had verification that, yeah, certainly Ido is at least familiar with, to, to some degree with this work. Um, and I'm so glad that I did. I'm so glad that I dived into it for those reasons. Cause it's been so, so deeply impactful on so many levels. Um, 
and and since um since then like I was just working with Ido and you know with Tom and then continuing to read the books as well and trying to apply some of the ideas in in my movement practice and um around the time of the pandemic I just thought you know I wonder if there's anything around in Australia I hadn't thought to look and I found that there was a group there was a group there was a website um and a group that was doing meetings and um when I I looked at their location. It turned out that they were in a place called Umina, which is 20 minutes drive from where I live, which is unfathomable. This stuff is so rare yeah. and it's down the road. Crazy. Um, yeah. So, you know, for the last, what, maybe 18 months, a couple of years, I've been attending meetings and they've got their own movement classes. Gojif was famously a teacher of dance, which again, it's one of those parallels with Edo. It's like you're this teacher who's about a movement thing, but it's about more than that. Um, and so, yeah, there's kind of these two parallel lines that I'm working with, um, with this this fourth way system and and um, and this movement practice. And what I love about it, I don't, th- I you know, I I don't think it's like a thing where it's you know this all the other paths are wrong and this is the way. What makes it actually quite wonderful is that Gurdjieff's unique offering, as far as I see it, is taking this understanding of all the spiritual traditions integrating them together, seeing what's common amongst them, and then presenting it in a way that's totally comprehensible to a Western mind. And I think this is in many ways what Ido's done as well, by taking all these different movement practices, bringing them together, finding the fundamental principles, and then presenting them in a way that makes sense to a Western mind or, or you know, to, the, to the modern mind, let's say. Um, and so it, it helps to make sense of all the paths. It, it really, it's not exclusionary or separate from, it's, it's very inclusive. Um, and that's why I really love it because it's in many ways, it has so many parallels with this movement practice and I love it for the same reasons. Yeah. And it's like not only presenting it like it's uh, comprehensible, but with a sort of a mysterious allure as well to draw our Western conditioned mind into like that, that mystery as well. Right. Which yeah. is something you come to appreciate. Exactly. Exactly. So what are some of the key ideas that, maybe you can share with us that have personally affected you and your perspective and what you try to bring into the practice. Sure. So the first would be that I think the, the, the two, two of the massive contributions of Gurdjieff and, and, and um, points of emphasis in the work are that of self-observation and self-remembering. So, you know, self, self-observation is not, again, it's not, none of these things are exclusive to what this, to, to this work, but it's, it's framed in a way that I think is very, is, is unique and, um, in, in useful. So self-observation is, is around observing your habits largely and recognizing that, um, you are a machine. We think that we have will, we think that we can do, but that everything we do is mechanical and habitual. Um, but you shouldn't take any of this on face value or just as an idea, you should verify this through observation. Um, and so a massive part of the work is, is in observing oneself, one's, one's own mechanicality. And I relate this deeply to the movement practice. I think so much of our suffering is because we have these habits um, and we don't even realize they're habits. And when we, when we realize that these are habits, we can observe our habits. We now maybe have a possibility of choosing whether to keep them or, the, or whether to update them. Um, I think I don't think habits are avoidable. Habits are important, but they they should be fluid. They should be dynamic. They should should update with time as as life changes. And and too often they don't, and that's what causes our suffering, unnecessary suffering. So self observation and then self remembering. And in the con, I guess the 
the practical application of self-remembering speaks to those three functions that we talked about, that man is made up of three centers or three brains in a sense. And what's really interesting about a lot of this stuff is that, you know, this a lot of this stuff was taught in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And then you realize that it is it, it it in some cases, in many cases, it is actually verified with modern modern scientific understanding. So, for example, the three centered being of the body, emotions, and intellect relates to the structure of our brain, the brain stem, the limbic system, and the neocortex. You know, the deepest part of our brain, the oldest part, is the moving instinctive functions, um, or responsible for moving and instinctive functions. The next oldest, the mammalian brain. Um, the limbic system is the emotional brain, and then the 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 newest part, the neocort neocortex, the new cortex, mm. is the intellectual mind. And this is what separates human beings from other life on Earth: is that you have where these three brained beings, um, and most other creatures are two or one brained. You know, a dog. It just as an example of how it makes helps life make sense. You know, people look at a dog and think, "I wonder what that dog's thinking. I wonder what mm. they're thinking right now." And it's like, "Well, they're not thinking." They don't have a neocortex. They don't have a thinking center like we do, but they do have a moving center and an emotional center. So that's why we can relate because the way that they move and the way that they feel things is the same. We 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 feel things in a similar way. They but they don't think like we do. Um, you know, an, an insect, for example, might just have an uh, an instinctive moving function, but not an emotional center. Um, uh, so to say. So recognizing that man is made up of these three brains in remembering ourselves, a part of that uh, beginning stages is in trying to pay attention to the functioning of those three centers. So not just noticing the, the, the sensations of the body, but also noticing the emotional content um, or the, the, the emotional energies and also the, the mind, the intellect um, and recognizing that we, you know, cultures tend to emphasize, tend to emphasize one over the other. Like in our culture, I think we've, I, I believe we're very, intellect oriented everything's about the head and the mind you see, i mean social media the internet it's all writing it's all words you know it's, it's concepts um like the scientific method is largely around ideas um but that also individuals have predispositions so there's this point made that um you know there there are three types of ordinary man and that relates to your proclivity to being either a body type a heart type or a head type essentially and so in in observer, observing yourself and in remembering yourself that you are this three-centered being, um, you start to notice that you uh, you have habits, that you have predispositions towards one of these three centers, and therefore the other two are less developed. And what, generally one of them is very underdeveloped. Um, and then this can also, this can guide you and give you clues on how to work on yourself. Because And it also explains why what works for one person doesn't work for another and why people are drawn to different things. Because if someone's, you know, a head type, They've already got plenty of ideas. You know, maybe they need to spend more time working on their heart or on their body. Um, but then someone else who, for whom they may be more of a body or a heart type, they would really benefit from more ideas. So it's like, you, you know, you, you you would prescribe, oh, you should read this book. Well, maybe I shouldn't read that book. Maybe, maybe I've already got enough ideas. Or maybe actually I do need to read that book. But a lot of it comes down to understanding ourselves. But because we don't recognize this, we don't see this in ordinary life, um, we don't know how to we don't know how to respect that and we don't know how to or we don't know how to work ourselves and we don't know how to offer help to other people that's appropriate to them um because we don't see it in that in that context as so there's much more to it but essentially the, the mechanicality of man um the the, fun, the nature of the three functions 
and the fact that we each tend to have a predisposition towards one of the three and therefore balanced development, which is what the fourth way is really all about. Balanced development is what makes it the fourth way and not one of the other three ways um, is about seeing these things. And then, and then once you see it, then you can figure out how to work from there. So how might you, you know, for a lot of listeners here would be like very familiar with, you know, like the physical side of things, right? Uh, how do you integrate like these ideas of like studying the intellectual center and the emotional center for to, to, to like well-round um, sort of in, uh, yeah, it, how, how would they go? Okay. I want a well-rounded practice, you know, orientate towards this sort of concept and those things that are new to me or maybe like uh, I'm less familiar with or I haven't been spending as much time on that, how would I start exposing and practicing that alongside like the current physical practice? Yeah, good question. So I'll, I'll, I think it's important to preface this by saying I'm not, I'm certainly not a fourth way teacher. I'm still very much in the beginning stages. And so the way I apply it with students is not a fourth way approach. This is my taking my understanding and my my personal practice in this system and then trying to figure out ways to just take this this understanding and and help people but still primarily through the body so that being said the way i might work with someone in a you know training context um around the intellect it might be uh well it could be one of two things it could be fasting it could be encouraging like less thinking less discussion some people especially head types want to just talk about everything and and struggle to actually do um, but, but talk about it as if, as if they're doing a lot. And so it might be this, you know, you feel it out based on the person. Some people you can just be blunt and like, Hey, you know, essentially shut up, let's get back to it. Um, for others, it might be more subtle or more just kind of teasing and fun, but it could be a fasting of the thoughts, but also for others, it could be, um, introducing ideas. So uh, one example of something I really, um, I think is a really important perspective with our practice is, and an idea I like to work with is seeing that when a child develops a new skill, and it almost doesn't matter what that skill is, it is wonderful to everyone. It is wonderful to the child. It is wonderful to their parents. It's wonderful to any onlookers. Everyone is stoked. And so there's clearly something to developing something new and also developing it for the sake of developing it. Because there's nothing more annoying than a child who is performative. The kid that's like, mom, mom, look at me, look at me, look what I can do. That sucks. But when the kid is just doing it and you just happen to be observing it and they're figuring it out, you're like, that's awesome. That's the best. So the importance of expression, self-expression, doing it for yourself versus doing it for other people and how inherently wonderful it seems to be to develop new things and to learn new things. And that we recognize this in children, but we seem to forget about it as we age. And I think it's largely due to cultural influences. Um, so you might embed an idea like that. Like it's just wonderful to learn new things and develop new skills. That, it, it's a capital G good just as, as is. So there might be an introduction of an idea like that, that helps give context to the physical practice. Um, so it could be taking th thoughts away, ideas away, dispelling myths or, or misconceptions. Um, a lot of it's around stories. I can give you a quick example of that where um, a lot of people have stories embedded, habitual stories. There's the habits again, habitual stories around who they are and what they can do. So I had a client many years ago, Patricia. Patricia, hello, if you're listening, love you too. Um, and she was really struggling with uh, jumping. And so we would do hangs from above, passive hangs, and we would use a box to get up there. And 
I said to her one day, hey, Patricia, one day you won't need to use that box. You'll just be able to jump up there. And she said her classic line, which is, oh, I'll never be able to do that. You know, this idea, this story, it's not a fact, it's a story. And I said to her, well, let's just try. You know, I don't know. We've never tried to get up there. So let's just try. So at least we can benchmark and see where you're at. So we moved the box away and she's like, okay, I'll give it a go. And she looked up there and, you know, prepared herself, then jumped and then caught it immediately. And we both burst out laughing. And so then through this physical practice, we dispelled this idea that she had that she thought was a fact, but is actually just a story. Um, so experiences like that, you know, I, I think is a way of, and, and you, again, you don't necessarily need these systems to do. I think a lot of trainers would intuit this kind of stuff anyway, but it helps me to understand why I'm doing it. And, and then it is important to not just do the work. Sometimes it's important to have these discussions around these ideas. Um, on the emotional content, often it's around our reactions to things, you know, un undue uh, negative emotion, especially that's the massive one. I think there's parallels there in the way that we hold unnecessary tension. Um, you know, the idea would be that we have enough energy, but often we feel drained at the end of the day or feel like we don't have enough energy because the energy is being leaked. It's, it's being lost like a, like a, a leaky hose. It's being lost. And you can see this in the physical movements, you know, holding undue tension, undue tension in the face when you're what's you know, that, how does that help? It's got nothing to do with it. Um, undue tension in parts of the body. And so similarly, how we can have these energy leaks through un unnecessary tension in the body. There's a massive leak in our negative emotions, um, holding on to negative emotions, which the work teaches are not, um, not natural for a human being that these are an aberration. These are, uh, um, it's something artificial and they're not necessary. And so if we can work, notice, you know, Hey, these and it's often a gentle process, but just notice your reaction to these things. You know, what, what oh, I, so I'm, I hate this. You, you hate it. Do you hate it? Why do you hate it? You know, do you hate do you hate the exercise itself, or do you hate how the, doing the exercise makes you feel? Um, for example, and just bring shining a light on on negative emotions and just gently encouraging, you know, um, softness, relaxation. Uh, for example, I, I find that's the main one. Before you can start considering, you know, adding, you know, I don't, you don't really need to think about or, or make an effort to do positive emotional stuff. You know, when it's wonderful, it's great, and everyone's elated, but it. I think it is useful to work on not, not at least not expressing negative emotion. You know, you might feel it internally, but just holding on to that and containing that energy and not letting it out unnecessarily and just wasting that energy. Um, so those would be examples of what I've found is very effective and taking sort of work ideas, like you know, fourth way work ideas, but applying them to in a practical way to a physical you know, our movement practice. Nice. Those are really nice examples and especially that one about the fasting of ideas because, as you mentioned, yeah, I think in this modern world, we over-intellectualize just generally all the time. We live up in the mind level and so, you know, it's very common to have doubts and you answer that to yourself by trying to rationalize or but like deduce it by logic, right, as to even what, like why you would do some sort of movement. But it's nice to be able to just go, oh, just lay down the hammer and just like, let's let's just do it. Let's <laughs> let's get to work and do it. And you know, you can ask questions later, or maybe it's just no, no, no questions. That that yeah. that's it. Yeah. And that's an that's a nice thing as well. Yeah. And you know, I notice it a lot in classes, especially with beginners, when we'll do a partner task, like a game, and people will stop and start talking about it. It's like, oh, I was just about to do this and I saw you were trying to do that. And then 
And so, oh, what, what, oh, could you do this a bit of that? And it's, you know, try to encourage, hey, like we talk all the time, guys, like all day we're talking and thinking. So let's, let's, let's treat this space as sacred and just like treat at the very least, take it as an opportunity to try to develop some other, you know, our, our ability to communicate with the body say, or, or in these more subtle ways. And you may actually find that this works better, but um, you definitely see it a lot with beginners, this tendency to over, overthink, over talk, over intellectualize what's happening and just jump to that by default. You'll be halfway through an exercise, like start talking about, and and also these are so these automatic associations, you know. Don't think of pink elephants. You can't help it. Like, oh, but now I'm thinking of pink. Oh, then I went to the, well, the circus is coming up. And I'm, man, I remember going to the circus when I was a kid. And my favorite one was those clowns that would go back and forth. And man, cl- clowns are scary. What else is scary? Oh, it's, you know, Halloween movies are coming out. You know, we can keep going off on these automatic associations. And if it's left unchecked, and this is why I think group work is really important because you do this, you observe yourself alone. You'll you'll go on this endless train of associative thinking. Mm-hmm. And it's good to have a group and it's certainly a teacher that's keeping everyone on track to be like, hey, another joke in our class, irrelevant. And now with the, now with the other students will do it. When someone starts going off on a topic for too long, it'll just get irrelevant. And then we get, <laughs> and then we get back to it, yeah. Um, which is, yeah, it's a tongue in cheek, but it's also great. It's like these little cheeky things that are embedded in, but um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's so common. And can you share a little bit about like on the physical side of the practice through the Gurdjieff work? Like you mentioned, you know, through, that there are some like um, dance practices maybe that you've been exposed to. Like, yeah, or what have you done or what have you noticed so far? Sure. Yeah. So I've been, I've, I've only been attending the movements classes for maybe six months or so now, maybe a little longer. It's, you know, you lose track of time, but oh, no, it would be longer. It would definitely be longer, maybe closer to a year now. Um, so they're very peculiar. It's very, very cool. So they're done to music, recorded music, um, things, often things you can't really access publicly. My teachers have seemed to have traveled the world and done a lot of very rigorous research and, and arduous research to get this stuff and to, to learn these movements because they're not, they're not available online or publicly. Though you can, if you Google, like Google Gurdjieff dances or something, you'll see some pretty interesting stuff and get a, a sense of what they're about. Um, and it's what you'll notice is that it's done to music. The music is very peculiar. It's hard to pinpoint it's kind of like, it sounds kind of like Middle Eastern maybe, but I don't know. It's like nothing like I've ever heard before. And um, it was composed specifically for this work. And it's working with, um, it's very layered. So you might, you know, work with, uh, you're working in a group and you, you do develop this choreography. And so it's very layered in the teaching. You might start by working on the, the, the stepping patterns and then introduce arms and then maybe a head and maybe there's a vocalization, something you're saying. And often like a clock, these things are sort of out of sync with each other. There might be like a, a four step, um, you know, stepping pattern that you're looping around, but then there might be like a six step arm pattern and then like a, an eight step vocalization or something. So it becomes very uh, difficult to, to maintain that. And it, therefore it requires conscious effort serious conscious mm-hmm. effort in order to stay to hold on to it and just to figure to remember where you are and um you know the relationship to the group as well so it's uh it's not it's not physically vigorous um and it is interesting i've had discussions with the teachers because you know gurdjieff would teach these movements and recognizing the value of physical preparation and conditioning but i think that when it was taught people were in much better shape and there, he could get away with doing a little bit less than we might need now. So I, my observation is that I think people would struggle to jump straight into these without another, without some other physical preparation, just because the bodies are so weak and tight mm. in our culture. Um, but 
yeah, they're not very physically vigorous, but they're very subtle and and sophisticated and complex. Um, and it does put you in this very peculiar state. Like I just, I feel very calm and, you know, the, all, all the stuff comes up, you know, the, when you, when you get it wrong, when you're getting frustrated or, um, trying to overly intellectualize and as, or as soon as you notice yourself thinking, you know, all, all of a sudden you've lost the way you are. And, um, it, 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 it's, it's very, it verifies itself very quickly. Like you, there's only one way to do it correctly. You can't really fake it. Um, and there's, there's so many of them, I'm still learning it, but it's, uh, yeah, it's 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 very it's very cool. I, I I wish I could explain a little bit better. I feel like it would you know give me another couple of years and I could really be quite eloquent with it, perhaps. But um, I think if yeah if your listeners are interested, just like Google it and just look at some of the videos. It's you you kind of get this this taste, this impression, and I think that was the the point of them in many ways with when Gurdjieff was teaching is they put on these performances, these like kind of theatrical performances of these movements. And my understanding is the intention or the design of it was to create a certain impression in the audience and to kind of the right people would sort of get a sense of what's going on and then would perhaps ask if they can join in or, or would want to learn more about it. So instead of like preaching and just telling people these ideas and like, you know, you're all mechanical, you don't know what you don't can't do anything. You're man number one, two. It's like, no, he's just, he's just a dance performance. And for some, it's just a nice dance. And for others, it's like, something more than just a dance. Um, and then for the people doing it, it's also, it's, it's work. It's you, I, I've seen some of the stuff online. It's like, that's, I can't even fathom doing that yet. It's crazy mm. complex. Um, but yeah, the, 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 what I really love about it is it's not just these, not just the realm of ideas. All these things are very practical and we do lots of inner exercises and it's very grounded. Um, and we're always told to verify everything. So that's again, like the physical practice, a movement practice. I, I find a lot of parallels there. Very, very cool. And, you know, I look forward to the next time where we can link up and then maybe you can show me some sure. of these practices and we can, we can have a go. I'd be, yeah, very interested to experience and, and then to see, um, yeah, this, this idea of that, that, that conscious effort directed into it, you know, it's, uh, I guess, yeah, that, that, that is one way that we can really integrate like a lot of just what we do in the physical practice to, to be sure of going, okay, like, yeah. What are we noticing through say the, these, these three lenses that you've talked about through there. And it's like, is it a conscious effort or, you know, is the mind just drifting off, you know, especially it's very easy when you're doing it or maybe working on something for a very long time and you get stuck stuck in it's very common right we term it this way like grinding it out yeah. and then which has like a good quality but maybe like the dark side of that quality is going are you really there mm. yeah exactly mm. so yeah i guess with your fledgling group which is maturing where is the meditative monkey heading what's on your mind in terms of you know the next one two three four five years i'm not sure in what sort of scale you think on but what are your plans what ambitions with how you may be expanding the scope of what you guys are doing and how to grow i'm so glad you asked me that i was i actually wasn't anticipating that question even though it was it seemed obvious but i'm so glad you asked because Obviously, I'd like to continue growing the community, attracting the right people. They seem to they seem to find it somehow, um, and and you know just being of service and of help to anyone who who's looking for it. 
but something I would would love to do. My my vision for this is to um to run some something bigger, um some sort of big, you know, whether it's a retreat or an event or something. And the purpose of that would be to introduce my students to the larger movement community that that I um that I'm connected with and love so much. And also to to introduce the larger movement community to what we're doing and also to the Central Coast. I think this is, I, mean, I, may, I might get in trouble for saying this, but this is like a bit of a hidden little secret for the for Australia. You know, we, people on the coast don't really like to talk about it because it's so beautiful here and you know, it's, not, it's not that overpopulated. It's not that populated yet. So kind of want to keep it that way, but um, it is a really wonderful place and um you know, I'd, I'd love to bring people in to, to expose, expose other movers to that. And, and I'm really inspired to do this because, you know, we, you and I were talking recently at, at this last little event about how it seems like there was this great zeitgeist when Ido came on the scene, um, especially through his big public efforts with Conor McGregor and the London Real interviews and um, just putting a lot out there online, this big expansion. And then it seems like there's been this contraction um, you know, he's still working, but doesn't seem to revolve as much around him. And there's now more these separate kind of satellite or separate little hubs all over the place, rather than this one central, like Edo Portal and his students and their students and their students. And maybe that's fine. And that's just kind of the way of things. And it's, um, you know, it is what it is, but I, I worry that things will start to drift and that, we will kind of lose this interconnectedness. It might be just a couple of friends that hang out rather than this real feeling of community. And, you know, without forcing it, you don't want to knock on someone's door and be like, Hey, be, be part of my community. We're, we're all one, you know, one of us. <laughs> um, you don't want to force it like that. Um, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not in the business of being a cult leader or, or following any cult leaders. Um, you, I guess you could argue that all these people that I'm following are, but and I'm already doing that. But <laughs> <laughs> I try, try at least find, following the uh, the best cult leaders I can find. Mm. Um, but if I can make a contribution, like like you're doing with this podcast, I think it's such a wonderful thing. Like you're not bringing in just people in part of the movement culture. There's but there's something common. Um, that's another realization I had with the meditative monkey thing. I think what's common amongst these people is they're all kind of meditative monkeys, you know. It's that people that have that that the whole spectrum of, of human expression available within us. And we do express that and that real interest to work on ourselves, but also just to be and to really revel in life and to know what's going on. And yeah, like you, you, you've made some great contributions with this show and bringing people together and your work. And so I would love to do something like that, you know, um, you know, open my doors to people that are local that want to come in, but also keep conversations going with people abroad um, and, and invite them to come in in the future as well. Um, yeah, that that's, that's, that's the, that's the real coherent vision that I have right now. You know, besides that, it's just, you know, I've got two young kids. Um, I, 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 my dream is always to have this space and these people around where they can join in and I don't have to send them off to a separate, you know, they'll go to school, but they can also just spend time with dad and, his community and be welcomed. And they already are like you know, babies in class and everyone's loving it and, you know, and, and they're, they're joining in. So just to continue to cultivate a space where people can come together, be around like-minded people, work on themselves seriously, but also be fucking ridiculous and make, you know, joke and make fun of each other and, you know, have a laugh and, um, and then to expose this work to the larger community and, and to connect to that larger community, whatever that community is. Yeah. I can vouch for the Central Coast. 
you know, the first time I went there, I was really, you know, you take, you can take a train like an hour, hour and a half out from Sydney. And I remember you, you go through a tunnel and then when you come out through the tunnel, it goes through like this portal in the, into this other world, like with beautiful, like inlets and streams running out to like oceans with like, seriously, like breathtaking beaches like the best beaches you've ever seen but then you've got these mountains and then you when I was there you know you took me to a waterfall as well we had this lovely swim through there and like the whole place is yeah very 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 beautiful so it is there's a it's a special spot I think and you know I'll just back that up if anyone is listening as well uh you know reach out to Ben um send him a message, try to connect, especially if you are in Australia as well, you know, and you're traveling around or, you know, you're going through Sydney or around there, you know, drop by in the central coast and meet him in person, drop by his studio as well and train. And yeah, I hope that um, sometime in the near future as well, that you can set something up with bringing people together, you know, introducing them to your group, but then also just for the general, as you said, like bringing people, whether it be just like Australian um, practitioners and teachers or even international, you know, it's a really nice feeling. And I think we all uh, thrive off experiences such as that. We all learn, share, connect so much, and we become a much stronger, much stronger individuals and collective for it. So I am excited that you have set your intention for that. And I wholeheartedly support it. Thank you, mate. And yeah, just I'll just second that. Anyone who's listening who is in Australia happens to be coming by. We've had a, a handful of people, you know, over the years who were just traveling through and maybe you've heard about it through yourself or other people and just drop in and it's always great. Um, you know, you, some someone goes from a stranger to a feels like a you know, a brother or a sister in just a few hours sometimes. Um, at the very least, you you're welcome to come to class, hang just hang out. Yeah, I think um it'd be a pleasure to have you. So yeah, please, if you're ever considering or if you're ever, ever dropping by Sydney, Newcastle area, especially, drop in. Ben, it's been wonderful to finally have you solo just on the Passive Hang podcast edition other than the videos. So we'll leave it at that. But, yeah, thank you very much, unless there's anything else that you want to share. Uh, appreciate your time today. Thank you very much, mate. I guess I'll just say that if you want to contact me, the probably the – the best way would be Instagram. I use, you know, like a lot of the movers, we, we use that a lot because it's this visual medium. Um, so at Meditative Monkey, um, you can contact me there. Um, or you know, if you're not sure, just re- contact Fayon. He can, you know, point you in my direction as well. But yeah, please don't be afraid to reach out. And um, yeah, if, if there are any any topics that we discuss today, you'd love to talk about. Like I'm always down for a good chat. Um, you know, I, I I really love putting up questions on my Instagram. It's kind of related to that area of listening. You know, this is a great treat to be able to sit and just talk for a couple of hours because um, it's 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 very comfortable for me. But I, I really try to make an effort to listen, to ask questions, as I know you do as well. And, um, you know, especially on social media, just asking questions and having that inspire so many great conversations. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoy that. So I just invite anyone who is interested to to engage. But once again, thank you so much for for inviting me. It's you know always great to to talk to you, man, and to to spend time with you. But in this context as well, again, it's an honor. Um, it's been a pleasure, and it's been really fun. And I appreciate you deeply, and I love you deeply. So thank you very much.
Episode 83, that's a wrap. Thank you once again, Ben, for jumping on the passive hang and sharing all that valuable insight. I hope you guys enjoyed that one. Ben and I are real big uh, proponents of spreading this movement culture with positivity and connection. And so really, you know, if something resonated with you in this chat, please feel free to reach out to Ben. I know he said this after our chat uh, to emphasize this message. So send him a message either on Instagram, on his handle, as he said, at Meditative Monkey, or you can jump on the website and find his contact details there. And that's also same for me as well. If any one of the points that we're discussing and also the stuff that I share online as well. If you have any questions, please always feel free to send me a message as well. You can find me on Instagram. That's at Fayonp, at P-H-A-O-N-P. Or you can jump on the website, thepassivehang.com. So remember, guys, you know, we'll spend a lot of time always in this practice. And I think one of the Big, big things that I always enjoy the most is when I get to share this practice with others and connect with others uh, through this practice. And that also goes for this podcast. So don't be a stranger. Feel always free to reach out and I'll be there to message you back. All right, guys. Well, more episodes coming your way. I will see you in the next one.